Are any of you um, out-of-town visitors today? Because uh, if you are, you probably don't want to hear what I'm about to say. Uh, we have many wonderful venues here in Denver that we that we love to take people to. Our sports teams have wonderful stadiums, and and, and that's all delightful. Uh, we have uh, fine restaurants. We have uh, we showed you the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Uh, but what I like to do is take people into the Rocky Mountains. Most of them are flatlanders that come to be with us, and and I like to show them the mountains. And so whether it's Guanella Pass or Trail Ridge Road, but my favorite for newcomers is the Mount Evans Road. And as you know, I make sure that they're on the you know on the passenger side of the car, and uh, I drive as close to the end of the pavement as possible, and I have them. I have them looking down, and you should see the Floridians and the Aussies uh, as they come from flat country, and I watch them turn white as they're, they're looking, you know, thousands of feet down below the road, and they're right there, and, and more than that, there's no guardrails on that road still, you know. Now, I haven't heard of anybody going over in the 20 years I've lived here, uh, but I did watch with Barb once. In fact, just last year, I watched with Barb. Uh, we were behind this minivan, which says something, and uh, in the minivan, they were not just away from the uh, from the end of the road as they went down the hill. They weren't just close to the center line. They weren't straddling the center line. They were in the wrong lane. <laughs> and I said, why would they do that? Because I could see cars start to come at them. I can see further ahead around the curves because I'm way back. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay way back. <laughs> And, and then, uh, we know, when I realized what was going on, I was going to go up and honk at them and stuff. I got real close, and the license plate said Florida. And I go, oh, I get it. <laughs> I love to take visitors to see our mountains because we're the Rocky Mountains. And if you don't live in the, in the Sierras of, of, of California, you don't see mountains like that many other places. Well, that's what we do. It is unique. It is a prominent feature uh, for visitors to see. It's why they come here. And it's one of the memorable things that we can show them we have here that they don't have many other places. Think about that because here's the deal. About 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Saul, who switched his name to Paul when he was among the Greeks, Saul walks into this city called Ephesus. It's renowned. It's on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. It's a port city, though you have to go about three miles up a river to get to its port. It was one of the top four cities of the entire Roman Empire. Had probably somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people. And it had two great tourist attractions. The first was an amphitheater that you can see here. And that, that's just a drawing, but the amphitheater was against a mountain uh, called Mount Pion. And, and that amphitheater seated 24,000 people. That's two and a half times the size of Red Rocks. And it was spectacular. And people would go to, to, to all sorts of uh, festivals and parades and theaters and pageants. Now, they couldn't do chariot races like in the Colosseum. It wasn't that big. But believe me, it was huge. The second thing they showed was this Temple of Artemis, 
who was the goddess of fertility. Now, this was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So as Paul walks into the city, not the first time, but the second time, this time to stay, he walks in and he sees a a, a marvelous structure. Uh, the roof is all marble tile. The uh, columns, is over a hundred of them. The hundred columns are six foot wide by 55 feet tall. 30 of them are individually carved. It was the real highlight of the town. It was like going to Disneyland in some ways. Now this uh, this uh, Artemis, this goddess known as Diana among the uh, uh, among the Romans, she was the goddess of fertility, and so people would go to pray to her for good fortune, uh, for having babies or things like this. Now. Uh, they also had there an image, like a meteorite, that they say had an image uh, of, of, of Artemis. And in, when you say an image, it was a meteorite, and it was very scraggly or whatever like that, but they said it was close enough, much like you see Jesus on a potato chip that you get and you sell it on eBay. It was something like that, okay? <laughs> and, and they held that as the treasure, that was the treasure and you could go in and it was, you know, it was protected and you could see this had been delivered by God to, to let you know that Artemis, this, uh, this goddess is the real deal. Well, the first time Paul comes into Ephesus, he walks through it, but he's really on a layover. He has just a, a day or two before he's supposed to catch a ship to go back to Israel to fulfill a promise that he's made to God. And in that time, he speaks to the Jews, and they invite him, very rare, they invite him to stay and talk about Jesus more. But he says he must finish his mission, and hopefully he'll get back. Uh, one or two years later, he goes the second time, and he goes to stay. Now, this city, Ephesus, is a magnet for trade. It, its harbor is considered wonderful and very protected because you have to go up a river. Uh, more than that, uh, it is considered a wonderful place for religious culture, especially the Temple of Artemis, one of these great temples ever built. And uh, it's cosmopolitan. By that, I mean it has people from all different backgrounds. So there are Jews along there with uh, 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 idol worshipers, uh, people who believe in the pantheon of the Greek gods. And especially in that city, it's all dedicated to Artemis. Uh, there are Jews there, and there are some disciples of John the Baptizer there who were Jews but who had gone through the baptism of their uh, for the forgiveness of sins that John did, and they find themselves in Ephesus. Well, he stays there for more than two years, and in that time, big things change and the whole city begins to change. The other thing about... Uh, uh, about Ephesus you need to know is it was also a center for immorality because since she was a goddess of fertility uh, you could uh, pay for one of the priestesses you know what I mean okay uh, and you know that was considered your worship wow so there were things there that would make us blush even today in our society 
So it is to these people who have given their lives to Christ, who've had a turnaround and transformation in their lives, that Paul writes a letter towards the end of his life, about seven, eight, eight to ten years uh, after he does that second visit. And in the background of this city and these people, there is already established a ministry that affects what Paul writes in his letter. So everything that we're going to be going through in the, in the book of Ephesians, I want you to know it's rooted in what some of the things I've already told you there. And there'll be other things that I bring up. So we're uh, launching this series today. And we'll only get to the first three verses, but we'll also look at the background. What was that second visit like? And this is going to take us 20 plus weeks to go through. So when somebody says, what is your definition of eternity? It will be when Jim finishes Ephesians. <laughs> but we're going to go sort of, you know, passage by passage. Not word by word, but passage by passage. I don't want us to miss anything. And we're going to deal with big theological terms and what they mean to you, as well as the last three chapters, some very practical stuff about the home and the family and, and how you fight the devil and, and really important things. What we want you to do as we go through this series is understand that one of the ways that God does his transformation process is we go deeper with God. And one of the ways to go deeper with God is to go deeper with him through his word. So I will probably be giving more detail and more background than I usually do just for that purpose. See it as a way to not just know more about a letter that Paul writes, but to know more about God. And what he has for us. So if we take four weeks on one chapter, understand the idea is we're going deeper. Now the Ephesians had a, a, a way of life that was different than any of the other churches that Paul had established. It says this in verse 1 of Acts chapter 19 when Paul makes his second visit. He says, while, Apoll, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and he arrived there in Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, but by disciples he means disciples of John the Baptizer. And so, uh, as he walks through there, though, he notices that uh, there's not just a great temple, but one of the things about the city life of Ephesus, there's not just a great amphitheater, but there's a great business there. It's, it's famous for its trade, but one of the best, most profitable businesses there was idol-making. People would take this clump of wood, they'd carve it, they'd, they'd uh, 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 sort of beat silver over it, and they tried to make it look like that rock, that meteorite. And others would try to make it look like uh, Artemis herself. And they could sell either. You might say one was the home size, you know, the 50-inch screen size of, of Artemis. And the other one was the travel size. You could just put it in your bag and put it there so that God would be with you, Artemis would be with you wherever you went. It was a not just a religious area, but you'll also find that uh, much like today, uh, people did things to honor Artemis but also to honor themselves in the midst of it. It's called reciprocity. Very popular today and then. It's a human trait, okay? What do I mean by reciprocity? One famous man said, I'm going to put on the birthday party for Artemis every year. And the birthday party will be a parade through the Ephesian streets and will end up in the big, um, 
in the big amphitheater. It'll go past her temple, but it'll end up in the big amphitheater. And because I'm funding this, I'd like to set the route. And he made the longest route possible so more and more people would see the float on it that says, by this man. He was considered a a philanthropist, yes, but he said, you know, I'm hoping that some good comes to me by all my generosity. That's one of the ways that we look at God today. And we'll get to those in just a minute. And another thing that was going on there is it was, um, it was filled with superstition. And everybody used religion to get ahead. So when this parade came there, people would all do the happy birthday Artemis song and, and have the big celebration. I don't know if they had a cake, but it was considered a town festival, a city festival. And the, uh, of course, the guy that paid for it would be the one who would stand up. By the way, you say, well, that was then, this is now. How many names has Mile High Stadium had in your lifetime? It's reciprocity. It's not evil. I'm not saying it's evil. It's human. You should expect, most people expect it. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. That's the way that the world works. We give so we can get. But when Paul writes this letter, he reminds these Christians in Ephesus of all that God has already given. You can't give back. All that God has already done for them, more than they could ever get back or more than they could ever give back to God for themselves. So we're going to find that there's probably three ways that people usually depict God. And you might say, well... You know, I'm a Christian, so I've got it all right. I just want you to know that as a Christian, I, I'm tempted by these, by, by, by these other ways. And, and I'll explain them in just a bit. But you find all three in Ephesus. You find all three in Evergreen. And I have had seasons in which I said, you know, as I look back at it, my motives were anything but pure. And it's because of my immaturity, which continues today, and my self-centeredness, which I have totally conquered. (laughs) No, I haven't. But we look at God, and and we need to be transformed in in the way we depict him. Either we say God is our magic genie, or God is our cosmic consultant, or God is Lord. And there's a difference in how we look at him. What do we mean by a magic genie? In Acts 19, Paul describes the strategy when he begins. He goes, as he always goes, first to the Jews, and then he goes to the disciples of of John, who were also Jews, and who have been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. The Jews argue with him about the deity of, of, of Jesus. Many of the followers of John just say this is the next step, because John came to open the way or prepare the way for Jesus. And so they are baptized again in water, but they are also baptized by the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in tongues. And it's one of those, one of those uh, beautiful moments. There's three or four in Acts. One of those beautiful moments where God just comes in and he proves that he's doing great works. The next thing that happens is that as Paul ministers to these superstitious people, miracles occur. Things are happening that all of their lucky charms cannot uh, provide. Uh, miracles are going on. And so it's a form of, uh, you know, when you see any form of power going on, understand people will follow. Because why? They want a magic genie for God. 
They want someone to supply and to provide those three wishes. They want God to do in supernatural ways what they can never do for themselves. As a child, I used to pray that way. I used to pray for things that I just wanted. I didn't know if God wanted them. I wanted them. And I said, if God would do something for me, I would do something for him. But he's first. That's the magic genie God. And Ephesus was that way. If Artifice, uh, Artemis would bless them, they would worship Artemis. If Artemis uh, would be the blessing that sold all of these idols, and I'm an idol maker, I'm a silversmith, then you know I will continue to follow her. Amazing thing. So it says in verse 17 now, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear. Now, what are we? What were they seized by? Well, here's some of the things going on. Not only is Paul praying for people and they're being healed, but it is so fantastic that people are taking his clothing, his aprons, his sweatbands, his handkerchiefs, and they said, "This is Paul's sweat," and God uses Paul's sweat. And if I take this headband and I and I put it, uh, you know, against you, you can be healed because all it takes is Paul's sweat. This is a handkerchief that I laundered, ironed, and folded myself. It is... It is freshly laundered. It was clean this morning. It's only been used once today. And I just want you to know that whatever your need is, you could buy this for me for the highest bidder. And I promise that 50% of what you pay me will go to the church building fund. And the other half, of course, goes to the Barb and Jim Acapulco fund. No, people were doing it for reciprocity. They wanted to get in the magic genie. And it was a, an amazing thing going on because Paul, he wasn't planning it, but it seems like even, you know, even God was blessing sometimes what was going on. Do you ever feel like God should be the magic genie? God's the one who just automatically gets you out of trouble, who automatically helps you win the lottery, who automatically will help the Broncos win if you pray right. We work that way. I prayed for the Broncos. Oh, boy, did I pray all season. Now, that's the first part. And, 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 and it is amazing because fear comes upon the people because even the handkerchiefs are working. Uh, that... You might say that can't be true, but I believe it. Now, God, what is this, you know, magic genie? God basically serves me. I tell him what to do. He serves me. I give him my wish. He's supposed to deliver. The second way is what we call the cosmic uh, uh, consultant, and that God doesn't serve me, but he works for me. Uh, there's a one of, one of the most humorous stories in, in all of the Bible you find in Acts chapter 19. And it, it, it's about these seven brothers who watch Paul. These are seven Jewish brothers. They watch Paul do this, these great miracles. 
And they watch him cast out demons. And whenever he does, whenever he does it, he says, in the name of Jesus, be gone. And he, they watch people come back to their normal selves. So they go, hmm, if God can do that through him, why can't he do that through us? And they say, we will let Paul and God be our consultant. We'll see what Paul does, and we'll do it just like him. We'll get in the pyramid scheme, okay? We'll be in the second level here. And, uh, and, and so they go into a house, and as they go into this house, they say, you know, in the name of Jesus whom Paul teaches, we demand this spirit to be gone. All seven brothers. And the man who is uh, possessed by a demon, he, he looks at them after a while and he says, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, I've never heard of you. And this one man beats up all seven because he has the evil spirit in him. And this one man strips naked all seven. And they're cast out of this one man's house, possessed by this evil spirit, bloody and naked. The town told that story again and again and again. And you can read it yourselves. And you're supposed to read it and just laugh out loud. Why? Because he's not a consultant. You just don't follow the formula. You just don't go to his... um, uh, to his seminar and pick up his notebook. You gotta push your, you gotta place your faith in Jesus. It's not, it, it's not the Jesus that Paul preaches. It's the Jesus in whom I have put my trust. And we know many people who see them as a, you know, uh, you know, who, who and they, when they consider, you know, what is God gonna do for me? He's my consultant. He works for me. You, you see this time? It's a bronco tie. I'd like to call it my lucky bronco tie. Uh, several of you have even, and when you saw this, you told me your stories of lucky bronco uh, patterns that you have in your life. One said, whenever they're having a bad first half, I get up and I leave the room, and they always get better when I'm not watching. <laughs> and did you know the broncos were just waiting till you left so they could you know, put on the afterburners? Uh, more than that, I know people who say I must always sit in the same seat at the same house for every Bronco game. And I said, well, how did that go for the four losses? Well, this is a lucky Bronco tie. The last time I wore this lucky Bronco tie was the Super Bowl of 2013. <laughs> so... If they lose, you can text me and say it's your fault. And it's bad lucky, Ty. If they win, I'm sending it to the Broncos with a bill. Because it would be all my, you know, it, it was because of me. This is what, saw, what Paul was facing when he got there. He saw all this superstition. And, and, and so, uh, they believe that God works for them. And if they just do things in the right way, God will bless it. The final way that people look at God is the way that I hope you do. God is Lord and we serve Him. 
And Jesus was saying to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, in John, in John uh, Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, to be transformed, your depiction of God is that he is the one transforming you. And so as Jesus says these words, it's not about how you're going to get ahead, but it's really uh, what your whole outlook on life will be. Do you call him Lord yet? Is there enough evidence of his leadership over you that people notice? It's not by what you say so much, but it's by what you say backed up by what you live. I was uh, sitting with a very old friend that we, we went to seminary together in 1970. And we were, we were talking about what were the, the big events that caused me to be a more avid follower of Jesus Christ. He's in his freshman year at a secular university uh, in a secular fraternity. And uh, as he goes in there, he realizes, you know, my dad got me in here. My dad's not a believer. I'm a new believer. And, and as he looked at the life and the fraternity, he said, either I find Christian friends or I won't be following Christ by the end of my freshman year. He takes, he takes a three-by-five note card and he puts down this prayer request. And the prayer request is, I need two Christian friends this year. And he begins to pray. Within one week, there is a knock on a door of a person that he has never met. And the person that he has never met said, somebody told me to look you up because I need someone to help me follow Christ. A week later, he is playing basketball in a pickup game, never met this guy before. But in that basketball game afterwards, they just started talking. He says, I'm looking for a church. The guy says, I'm looking for a church. And he goes, oh, why, you go to church? Where, what church are you? And they get into this conversation. And by the end of that conversation, there are three people meeting twice a week to study the Bible and follow Jesus Christ together. He said, I'm going to serve God, he is Lord, and look at what he did when I said, I will serve you. He did more than he ever could have imagined, and he did it faster than he could have dreamed. I want to say this. This is what happens when Jesus comes to town, friends. When Jesus comes to Ephesus, there are things going on. And, and, and because Jesus is Lord, uh, there is opposition, there is uh, conflict, there's all sorts of things going on. When I, when I gave my life to Christ, there was conflict in my family. Maybe that has happened to you. When you give your life to Christ, there'll be conflict maybe among your relationships, your, your friends or things like this. But here's what is happening. And, and it's, it's an amazing story. Because it says this in verse 17 of, of, of um, uh, Acts 19. Um, it says, when this became known, in other words, what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Verse 19, and a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and God and, and grew in power because God was transforming lives. People were taking their magic potions, their magic incantations, and they were burning them. That's what happens when Jesus comes to town. Well, because of this, the uh, the idol trade is starting to decrease. This is hitting the economy of the town. Uh, pretty soon, this whole sort of artisan group is going to be in trouble. And so a guy by the name of uh, uh, Demetrius the silversmith gathers these other artisans together. And he says, hey, we're hurting because of Jesus. We're earning less money because of Jesus. So he goes from a group discussion to a pep rally. And from the pep rally, finally ends in a riot in this huge amphitheater. We don't know how many thousands, but we know many thousands found themselves in this amphitheater that seats 24,000 people. And for two hours, there is an ongoing chant, and the chant is, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We can't do that for the Broncos. We wouldn't yell two hours for them. It gets down to the core, not not just what do I believe, but what am I depending on, and and how am I making my living? And this is actually not just economic and religious, it's patriotic. This city was built on Artemis. How dare you destroy it? That's what happens when Jesus comes to town. So Ephesus will never be the same. And yet the church in Ephesus, though it's persecuted, though Paul has to leave, and all these other things, it continues to swell not It is not a, um, a threat to the secular government. They allow it to continue. And they actually warn those causing the riot to stop it or else. So the letter that we're about to read is about seven, eight years after this riot. And Paul is in prison. But the church in Ephesus continues to thrive. Not without problems, but it continues to thrive. The temple still exists. But God is building a church with no walls. Just people's lives. And and there's no walls that can contain them. They they meet in meeting halls. They meet in lecture halls. And and they meet in all these other places where, you know, where we just see a swell in numbers, not in columns of of Greek marble, but we see a swell in the numbers of people. And Saul begins this letter to them in a very appropriate way. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's what keeps him going. You know, he didn't, he never asked to be an apostle, okay? To the saints in Ephesus, then it says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful, the ones who went through the persecution, who went through the riot, and are still watching God at work. And he says, grace and peace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, God has done for you in an invisible way what Artemis could never do for you in any way. 
all that God wants you to have, he has given you in Christ. Do you know all that God wants you to have? Next week, we'll get started. Okay, Just touching the surface of all that God not just wants you to have, but has given you every spiritual blessing. I want to leave you with three questions to be thinking about. The first is this. When you look at, you know, the contrast between the, the wonderful architecture and the, and the, uh, you might say the developed religion of a place like Ephesus, what lasts? What lasts? What do I mean by that? Well, uh, in your takeaways, here's a picture of the Ephesus, the amphitheater as it is today. It is a ruins. It's not much left there. I guess you could have a tour and sit there. But even the city itself, nobody lives in it. That is the amphitheater where all these festivals and parades occurred. The next slide is that magnificent temple. And here's what's left. It was missing for over a thousand years. Just got covered with dirt. And they discovered it in about 1867. Um, so, you know, what last? Let me ask this. Which of you got up this morning and prayed to Artemis? Not one. Any of you ladies wanted to get pregnant? She's the gal. And any of you ladies don't want to get pregnant? She's the gal too. She can stop it. She can start it. None of you did that today. Why? She doesn't last. And yet, 2,000 years later, did you hear what they're doing in one of these uh, provincial areas of China where, where they don't want the news to get out? There are so many churches, and the churches are the biggest buildings in the entire city. And, and the crosses tell people where they can go to worship Jesus Christ. So the government comes in, and they take down the crosses. They say, you can, you're not allowed to have crosses on your buildings. And, and, and so the, the pastors and the people say, What? When did you start this? Well, it doesn't meet the original intent of our architecture of this town. China has original intent of architecture, yeah. Uh, and, and so all the government comes in and takes down all the crosses. There's no crosses. The churches are fuller. Because God is building a building with no walls. Wow. No walls. Just a swelling of people. Over 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't just lasted. He's just not still remembered. There are billions following him in one way or another. The second is, personally, what have I done with Jesus Christ? What have I personally done with Jesus Christ? And is there any visible evidence to what I have done with Christ? By that, I mean, if you are following Christ, there will be opposition. I don't mean they're going to persecute you or have a riot or anything like that. But things will be different. Expect it. You'll be different. And people will notice. And finally, the third question is, does Jesus Christ have any effect on my daily life? If you are saying Jesus is Lord, not a genie, not a consultant, I want to say this. You will never have more joy in him in your entire life than when he is both the leader and you are the follower. You will never be happy. You'll never get the sense of this is where I fit. Where he is acknowledged as the leader of the Lord and you call yourself the follower. There's a lot of hurdles to cross there. But you'll never be happier if you call him Lord. Because that is what you are created to be like.
And the effects will show on every relationship you have, every way you write a schedule, and every financial statement you look up. Jesus is in charge. And your best question to him is, Lord, what's next? Where are we going next? It's an adventure. I encourage you to be on. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a marvelous God you are to send Jesus Christ to us. And as he writes this letter, your Apostle Paul, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to the disciples who are there in Ephesus, and he calls them the faithful. Faithful because they have acknowledged Jesus as Lord. Faithful because they continue to follow him and call themselves followers of Jesus. May we love that word. May we not talk about it as meaning no talent, no excitement, no pizzazz. May we relish that word faithful. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.